This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. My guest this week is Christian Picciolini. Christian is an activist, author, and speaker who is a former white supremacist, but is doing the hard work of reconciliation and helping other people leave hate groups through his nonprofit, The Free Radicals Project. His newest book, Breaking Hate, Confronting the Culture of Extremism, is now available. Now at 5.30, hate crimes are up in major U.S. cities. The targets of these hate crimes are diverse. The most common victims, the report says, African Americans and gays. We have to repair the damage of the past, of the last 401 years. We can't just make these investments without reparations. The rallies are generally set up by white nationalists and are attended by neo-Nazis and white supremacists and racists and bigots, all of whom show up to try and make a point. They have one general reason for doing so. They want to recruit other white people to their cause. What do you want to call them? Give me a name. Give me a white name. White supremacists and white right like supremacists. Proud boys. And right proud proud boys. Stand back and stand by. I'm Christian Picciolini. I'm a former far-right extremist. I denounced white supremacy 20 years ago. And for that time, I've been trying to dismantle it piece by piece. And for the latter part of my life, sorry, not sorry. Christian, I am really glad that you're here because it feels like we are at a precipice in America right now where one misstep will send us plummeting into generations of racial hate and violence. And I think it is so very important to understand how people enter hate groups and white supremacist organizations. So in order to get a better understanding, can you tell us a little bit about your story in particular? Yeah, Alyssa, thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here, but it's also a privilege. And I want to acknowledge that oftentimes people that look like me get second chances and we still live in a world where black and brown folks aren't getting even first chances in many cases. So I wanted to point that out too, but thanks for having me. I was recruited in 1987 when I was 14 years old into America's first neo-Nazi skinhead group. I spent eight years as a member of that until I was almost 23 years old. But before that, to even take a step further, I wasn't raised to be a racist. My parents are Italian immigrants who came to the United States in the mid-1960s. And when they came over, they were often the victims of prejudice. They also had friends from all over the world, different religions and backgrounds, and I was always exposed to that. So it wasn't a matter of my parents rearing that in me. But because my parents are Italian immigrants, they also had to work extremely hard when they came over. And they started a small business and they were gone seven days a week, sometimes 14 or 16 hours a day. So I didn't really see them a lot. And I knew 
that they loved me. I was surrounded by a lot of love and grandparents and aunts and uncles, but I never saw my parents. And I always wondered where they were and why they weren't around. And it always came back to maybe I wasn't good enough. So I never really voiced that. So I went looking for that elsewhere, went looking for that sense of family. And when I was 14 years old in 1987, I was standing in an alley. I was smoking a joint. And a guy with a shaved head came up to me and it was 87. So nobody really knew what a skinhead was. I certainly didn't. And this guy walked up to me and he pulled a joint from my mouth and he looked me in the eyes and he said, that's what the communists and the Jews want you to do to keep you docile. I didn't know at 14 what a communist was. I didn't know if I'd met a Jewish person. I didn't know what the word docile meant. But what I did know was that this guy was probably one of the first people in my life outside of my family that paid attention to me. I'd been bullied, not terribly, but I was I felt pretty marginalized growing up. I was an Italian kid, an Italian-American kid growing up in a neighborhood that didn't have a whole lot of ethnicity. So I was often the outsider. So the next thing that he said to me after he pulled a joint from my mouth and then blamed it on Jews and communists was he asked me my name. And that was probably the most important thing that he could have said, because I had been afraid to tell people my name for most of my life because people made fun of it. Picciolini is not a real easy name to pronounce. So I heard all sorts of terrible variations of that growing up. So I was afraid to tell him, but I spit it out. And instead of making fun of me, he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, that's a fine Italian name. You should be proud of that. I was raised by Italian parents and I had gone to Italy for summers and things like that as a kid. But he said that somebody wanted to take that sense of pride away from me. And then he started to blame blacks and Jews and immigrants. And that didn't even register with me having my parents as immigrants. And what he offered me that day was not an ideology because I couldn't really care less about the ideology. I didn't know anything about it. What he offered me was a sense of identity, a community, and a purpose. And that was something that I was searching for. And that's what these groups, all sorts of toxic groups, are very good at promising a really fake, although you don't know it's fake, a sense of identity, community, and purpose that draws people in. And I think we're dealing with kind of a mass migration towards these toxic ideologies today, just because as people were uncertain and searching for identity, community, and purpose, but as a nation, we're also devoid of a sense of national identity, community, and purpose. We've hit what I call potholes in our life's journey. Just like I did as a kid, I felt abandoned. And these things that I couldn't navigate around detoured me to the fringes where those narratives were really prevalent. And I think as a nation, we've got a lot of historical potholes that we've never addressed and we need to if we're ever going to get past this. I think as a nation, we probably have more than potholes. It feels like huge craters and unresolved oppression that we haven't come to terms with, we haven't apologized for, we haven't reconciled. I feel like this time is so fascinating because the information travels so differently now. I watched that QAnon thing on CNN the other night, and I was, I mean, my face while watching this special, I just couldn't believe how quickly people would get that invested in absurdity. I live just a few blocks south of the Capitol, and so I started seeing people walking on the sidewalk heading up to the Capitol with Trump flags and red hats, and I thought to myself, I wonder if my mom's here. I just thought to myself, let me check her YouTube and see if she happens to be down the street, and lo and behold, she was. We are here at this rally, look at this. She was there protesting and shoulder to shoulder with people. That's when everything changed for me. I will never stop loving my parents, but it's this switch that flips in them when they're talking about what the latest Q-drop means. They're not logical anymore. They're not understanding, and often they're not kind. We are talking 
absurdity. We recently heard Marjorie Taylor Greene blame wildfires in California on space lasers controlled by Jewish bankers. It's lunacy. Now, on its surface, from any objective reading, obviously it's ridiculous, but I think it illustrates how deep extremist ideas can just become part of the fabric or worm into people's minds. What were some of the things you were taught? Unfortunately, I think that there's a lot of crossover with the kind of stuff that I believe, you know, when I was 15 to 20, that people are believing today. So it was always rooted in anti-Semitism, much like a lot of the QAnon conspiracy theories are, much like the white nationalist conspiracy theories are. And there was always somebody to blame other than yourself for what was happening in the world. I always categorize hate as like a suit of armor that the person wears thinking it protects them from the self-hatred that they feel. They're projecting self-hatred in almost all these cases as I was during that time. I was driven by my uncertainty and my uncertainty drove me to those places where those absurd answers were. We've got people today, you know, groups like QAnon believing that all Democrats are pedophiles and Satan worshipers who promote sex trafficking and child trafficking. And this goes back to Pizzagate conspiracy theories where, you know, somebody believed that Hillary Clinton and her administration wanted to traffic children out of a basement of a pizza place in Washington, D.C. And somebody almost died because of that type of fake news and conspiracy theory. So there's a whole lot of crossover with what I believed in what is happening today. But lasers? Did you believe in lasers? I did not believe in lasers. I don't even know that lasers existed in the 80s when I was around. Certainly the internet didn't. But I think that that is the ingredient. The internet is the you-can-eat hate buffet that's open 24 hours a day if you want it. I had to get a pamphlet in an alley and get invited to a meeting. I mean, they think that the liberal left, the reason why we're pedophiles and have these crazy child abduction. I mean, it's just so terrifying is because we're drinking their blood to stay youthful looking. Like I can almost wrap my head around becoming so engrossed in something like a religious cult that you think is grounded in some sense of goodness or bettering. But this is Looney Tunes. It's another level. And I think what's even more disturbing to me is that this is not the stereotype of the person that you would think would go into these things, right? It's not a poor, broken down person. These are people who are CEOs of companies. They're politicians who've been elected with votes by a lot of people. These are, in some cases, teachers or police officers or military. And I think it's really important to understand. It kind of is easier to explain if we can admit that it's not the ideology necessarily that is the primary draw. It's the glue that holds them together, for sure. But it's not the draw. It's that search for who am I, where do I belong, what am I supposed to do with my life, and then detoured by those potholes, the trauma, the poverty, the privilege even, if it keeps us too separate from humanity. Those are the types of things that lead us there. And once we have that reward of that identity, community, and purpose, and you've maybe never had those types of reward before, it's really hard to convince somebody that what they believe is wrong or what they believe is absurd because they are still getting the rewards of that identity, community, purpose. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it 
a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I went from invisible at 13 and a half to somebody who was feared, somebody who had been picked on, to somebody who was the bully then. It was very empowering, and it allowed me to forget all the logic, all the family values that I had been raised with, and it allowed me to accept ideas that QAnon and other groups, that Jews controlled the media and finance systems and were using those things to destroy white lives, and that they were promoting multiculturalism and diversity as a tool to promote white genocide. Those conspiracy theories are still around driving these groups. In fact, the president of the United States, the former president of the United States, retweeted those types of conspiracy theories. This is Donald Trump's promise to his supporters. You protect him, you do what's necessary, and he'll protect you. He'll pay your legal fees. He'll back your lie. That's his promise. You, you, you protect him and he'll protect you. He'll use his money, his power, his anything. If they fix this problem, he will make sure they don't pay any consequences for it. So if you see somebody getting ready to throw a tomato, knock the crap out of them, would you? Seriously. I think that's part of the problem, too, is that these conspiracy theories were validated by the uppermost level of power. If he was confirming these things, then clearly they must be true. And I'm wondering if you have a sense of what ties not only all of these people together from even when you were a child to now, this white supremacy, this sense of being marginalized and wanting to have a sense of community and objective. But what is it in their brain that connects all of these people to being so susceptible to this? I think it's a fear of loss. It is the propagandists pounding on them that they are losing something. If you think about like the disappearing middle class, there were a whole lot of people that went from having, you know, home to suddenly because of stock market or their IRA or whatever, they lost something. And those are the people that are the most susceptible actually to extremism, to being radicalized. Not the people that are the lowest end of the poverty scale, because they're just struggling with kind of the day to day, but it's the people who are like are on the cusp of things that suddenly have lost something that are really susceptible and vulnerable to being radicalized. So Somebody swoops in and blames somebody, Jews, for them losing their savings or their home, that they control banking systems, whatever nonsense that they can use to kind of mold around that situation. So I think what drove all this is propaganda. We have major news networks like Fox News now who are constantly telling the white males that they are losing something, that somebody is taking something away, and it's the liberals, and it's the Democrats, and it's the left, and it's Antifa, and it's any other boogie monster that they want to create to tell them that somebody is taking something away. It's so easy to place people in boxes, drawing lines, creating sides. There's us, and there's them. Those we feel comfortable around and those we don't. There are those of us with many chapters and those just starting their own stories. There's the well-to-do 
and those doing what they can. There are those we share something with, and those we don't seem to share anything with. Those are the same things that I was taught in the 80s and 90s. I was going to lose my property. I was going to lose my job to minorities. I was going to lose my home to the Jewish banks. The list goes on and on and on. And there's always somebody to blame for that. So as long as we keep using fear rhetoric, it's going to continue to happen. So how did you get out, Christian? I'm happy to say that every day that I was a member for eight years, and I had become a leader during that time. I always had doubts. Thank my family for that, for grounding that in me. But ultimately, I kept going deeper and deeper, even though I had these doubts. What ultimately pulled me out was having the opportunity to have meaningful interactions with the people I thought I hated. And I always want to preface that by saying it's not their responsibility to do that. It's no person of color's responsibility to be nice to me, the white power skinhead. However, I'm glad it happened because it gave me the opportunity for the first time in my life to have those meaningful interactions. I opened a record store in 1995 to sell racist music. At that point, I was making racist music. I was in a band that was traveling the world. I was importing this music from Europe, and it was 75% of my revenue in my record store. But I also sold to get a business license, a little bit of hip hop, a little bit of punk rock, a little bit of heavy metal. And people would come in to buy that stuff. And they knew who I was. Even before the internet, I was pretty vocal about what I was involved in. And it was the people of color, the Jewish people, people who were gay, who came into my store knowing who I was and use that as an opportunity to attack me in a compassionate way. What does that mean, attack you in a compassionate way? They could have attacked me in aggressive ways and they chose not to. Instead, they came in and they had conversations with me. They didn't shop in my store very much because I think that they didn't want to support me and, I, and I'm totally okay with that. But they still came in. They still went through the motions. They kept coming back despite knowing who I was. And every time they came in, I still had it in my head. I wanted to be a good business person because I wanted their money. But what that allowed me to do was to have conversations with them that broke through me. One specific example of that was a young black kid who came in all the time. He was a teenager, came in all the time to look at the hip hop, but never bought anything. And he was always really goofy and bouncing around and never caused any problems. He was just a fun kid. And I never said anything to him. Except for one day he came in, he wasn't that kind of happy-go-lucky kid. He was really sad. And I noticed it and I just decided to ask him what was going on. And he told me his mom had been diagnosed with breast cancer. And suddenly I could relate to him because my mom had been diagnosed with breast cancer not long before that. My grandmother had cancer and died from cancer. And I, not even thinking about it, found myself in a conversation with this kid. And there was no denying walking away from that conversation, having felt something for him. And it was, you know, a lot of instances of that, that allowed me to really feel a lot of shame for what I had been doing. I pulled the music and it meant that I had to close my store, but it was the best thing that happened to me because it gave me the safe space to break away from the movement. Even though it took me like two or three years to really denounce it, I stopped associating with them. I closed the store, I stopped selling racist music, and I started to explore these alternate realities that I wasn't used to, like people who were of color and just different music and all of these different experiences that finally allowed me to find the courage to stand up and publicly say, I was wrong. And not only am I wrong, but I'm going to fix what I broke. You knew that when you left, that you were going to fix what you had broke. 
It took me three years to figure that out. And I'll tell you exactly who told me how to look at the problem that way. It was a really freak incident in 1999. I closed the record store three years before, and I was living three years floating in the ether, not knowing what to do. I tried to run from the movement. I tried to make new friends, a new job. And one of the only friends that I had came to me and she said, you've got to change your life or you're going to die. And I said, I'm open to ideas. And she's like, well, go apply at this company that I just started working at. They're looking for entry-level computer technicians. And I said, well, I don't own a computer, but sure. The company was IBM. And I thought she was crazy for asking me to go apply for a job there because I'd been kicked out of six high schools. I didn't go to college. I didn't even own a computer. It was the stupidest thing to think about at that time. But I went and I got this job that was very entry-level. It was setting up computers at like corporations when they would order 600 computers and somebody would have to go install them all. Well, it was a school district that had hired IBM to redo all their computers over the summer. And it turned out that the job they hired me for was at my old high school, the same one I'd been kicked out of twice to set up their computers for the summer. And suddenly I'd gone from like thrilled because I had a job to, oh my gosh, like I've got to go back to that place again because I knew somebody was going to recognize me and I had not come out publicly about who I used to be. And I went and the first person I saw was Mr. John Holmes, the old security guard that was the head of security when I was in high school there. And I thought the jig was up. I was having all these emotions. I wasn't that person anymore. He didn't recognize me, but I decided I was going to follow him to the parking lot. And when I approached him, I said, I was sorry. And I told him my story. And he said, that's great. And I'm glad you're sorry, but that's not enough. He says, I'll forgive you, but now you've got to go out and you've got to fix what you broke. And I've been doing that for 20 years. So when you left, were you in danger from the extremists? Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, probably still hasn't stopped. I still get threats and I still get informed when there's things floating around that are targeting me. In 1996, when I left... Until 1999, when I denounced, I wasn't brave. I didn't tell them off. I ran and I promised them I would come back because I had to work on some things. And I never had any intentions of going back. But when I denounced, I knew that it was the right thing to do, despite whatever the danger was. Because at that point, I was starting to see a trend. I was starting to see it grow. I was starting to see younger kids being attracted, even younger than I had been. And I saw that it was starting to turn into something much different than the fringe thing that I was a part of. And in fact, I think what we're seeing today is really a culmination of that. Do you think it's a direct extension? Yeah, I think it is. There were some things that happened in between then and now that really blew it up. The Tea Party movement, I think, was the first real kind of push to mainstream that part of the ideology, and that really took off. And that infected the libertarian movement to some degree, and it infected some other, you know, kind of adjacent, not classifying them as white supremacists, but they started to recruit from that pool, which is why we see a lot of militia groups involved. And that's even older. That goes back to the 60s and 70s. But what we're seeing today is all of those groups that fell under the white supremacy umbrella white nationalists, neo-Nazis, Proud Boys, skinheads, militia groups, oath keepers, things like that, now starting to coalesce into one larger movement. And that all happened for a couple of reasons. The internet allowed them to communicate. To find each other. To find each other uh, and to realize we might be different, but we have the same mission, right? We have different traditions and customs from clan to skinheads to militia, but we all have the same end goal. So that allowed them to come together. But they also had a mouthpiece in the president of the United States, which that movement never, ever had before. Social media is one of the main ways that uh, hate groups uh, propagate their message and one of the main ways that they recruit uh, new members, it's it's basically costless and they can reach a lot of people through it. How do they do it? Uh, through advertising, um, through videos. Excuse me, what do they advertise? Hey, we're a hate group? 
Well, sort of like memes and things like that. Um, so, you know, little uh, pictures with slogans and other sorts of things like that. Um, political advertisements and uh, videos of some of their activities. They're always powerful people. Don't get me wrong. We knew people who were elected back in those days, but never was the president of the United States the person openly pushing the same rhetoric, the same conspiracy theories, and even patting them on the back in certain circumstances. That allowed them to just explode. And even when he wasn't deliberately patting them on the back, which there were plenty of times that he was deliberately, but even when he wasn't, they thought that he was because they were trying to decode certain things that he did or said. I mean, it really was a perfect storm, but a storm that had been brewing for a really long time. And I think the thing that strikes me from the outside is your indoctrination seems almost like an accident. You were a pretty normal kid who was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and you were sucked in. So knowing what you know now, how do we prevent that from happening? I think to some degree it was accidental, but they were also looking for people like me. So it wasn't an accident that I was smoking a joint in an alley and a guy came up to me and said, hey, kid, don't do that because there are bad people that really are trying to get you to do that. They looked for things like that. And I learned how to do that when I became a recruiter. We used to go to arcades and skate parks and stand outside of punk rock shows because we knew there would be kids there that were looking for identity, community, and purpose. And we spelled that out very clearly for them. I think so what can be done is... I think we need to treat this like a pandemic to a certain degree and how we tackle it. We have to treat the quote unquote sick, right? Which is what I do. I do disengagement work. So I help people disengage from these movements. But if we always do that, that's just a band-aid. What we need to do is we need to inoculate the population from getting sick. And part of that is the systemic and institutional racism that exists in our country is a breeding ground for white male racists, for white racists. So we have to fix that. We have to turn off the bigots, bigot, I say. And so much of what I do to help people disengage is a social service. I'm finding them therapists, psychologists, job trainers, life coaches, tattoo removal artists, counselors, faith groups, all that stuff. So if we want to prevent this in future generations, we need access to healthcare for everybody, access to mental health care, access to jobs and education, and all the things that we've been talking about that every single person I think in the world would agree that would be good to have. If we had access to those things in an equitable way, that's how we prevent this in future generations because people only find their way to these kind of toxic environments if they're struggling with some kind of pain or they're taught to be that way. So in both of those cases, I think we can alleviate a lot of this by you know focusing on creating a healthier society. I'm wondering if any of my listeners have a loved one who is sucked into one of these organizations. What can they do to help them leave? That's a really important question because unfortunately, we all, I think, know somebody, have access to somebody who might be going down that pathway. I think the most important thing to do is listen. Never in my experience in the last 20 years, and I've helped hundreds of people disengage, have I ever gotten through to them by debating them or telling them that they're wrong. Of course, I know that they are. But instead, I listen and I filter out like the ideological stuff, and I listen for those potholes that I was talking about. And then I become a pothole fixer. I pair them up with the tools that they need, whether it's therapists, job trainers, all that stuff, to help them get a better foundation underneath them. 
And then I start to replace the identity, community, and purpose with something more positive. So if we know somebody, if we're a teacher, a parent, a loved one, we need to listen, I think. And sometimes it's hard because it's not what they say that we need to listen to. Oftentimes it's the most painful things are the things that people don't talk about. So I think we need to learn how to maybe be a little bit vulnerable with the people we love and just listen for those motivators that send them that way and then work backwards to fix that. But it's important. We have to hold people accountable because redemption without accountability is just privilege. And I hold everybody, I have held myself accountable for what I've done. And it's important we don't skip that step. Because you talked earlier, Alyssa, about truth and reconciliation and the potholes that we have as a society. We've never really addressed those. We've never been held accountable for our past mistakes, and we have to do that. Redemption without accountability is just privilege. I think that's true. So I'm wondering if there are any signs, let's say there are parents who have found this conversation and who are concerned and maybe their kids haven't dipped their toe in yet. What are the signs that they should look for? I think kids that feel isolated, that maybe have had trouble breaking into positive community or finding camaraderie, those kids are always really susceptible because these groups do empower people to a certain degree in obviously unhealthy ways. Growing up, I felt abandoned. I was lonely and I started to withdraw. And then I started to resent my parents and become very angry. And as I was growing up, Through my teenage years, I started to act out to try and get attention from my parents. Kids are naturally looking for answers, right? So it's important that when they're looking, that we do our best to provide them with really positive avenues to find that. I know we're busy in our lives. I know we've got a lot going on, especially now with pandemic and everything that's happening in the world. But if we don't take time for those young people now, they will find those answers. Right. Especially with the internet and social media and YouTube. I mean, it is so easy for a kid to start out on a certain search on a video on YouTube. And then all of a sudden, like six videos later, we've spiraled into a dark place. And it's just, it's scary. Parenting right now is scary. Yeah. And I would say too, to parents, I think we have to learn to be vulnerable with our children. How will they ever learn to be able to communicate with us about the stuff that they're not sure about, that they're uncertain about. If we never do that with them, they look at us as like superheroes, right? And we act like superheroes to some degree. And I think it's okay to talk to our children in ways that show we're vulnerable and we don't know, and we're trying to work through things because I think that maybe that will help teach them that they can safely communicate with us about things as they're exploring, as they're learning things. And that goes for teachers, coaches, whatever. I think to some degree, we need to learn to do that. And maybe that brokenness that we all share is the universal glue that'll hold us all together somehow. How would you assess white supremacy in America right now? I think we're living in a predominantly white supremacist society. Wait, predominantly? Yeah, predominantly white supremacist society. So you think white supremacists are the majority? No, let me explain that. So I think the institutions and the systems that are in place are favoring white 
males. So in terms of we are living in a white supremacist society, that's what I'm talking about. If we're talking about how many white supremacists, I think that there are shades of that, right? Are we all complicit to some degree? Likely. Are we learning to not be? I hope so. Are we talking about violent, militant people? I think we have to have conversations that really look at that honestly and say, maybe there's a million, maybe there's 5 million. And if it's even that high or that low, depending on what you're thinking the number might be, that's a lot. Even if it was 100,000, it only took 14 people to commit the acts of 9-11 to fly those planes into those buildings to coordinate that. If there are, you know, a hundred of those people at that level who are white supremacists living in America, we should be disgusted, terrified, and want to do something about it. And I think the number is bigger than we think, Alyssa. I don't want people to make the mistake and look at what happened at the Capitol on January 6th and see that crowd of people and think, that's it. That's the problem. Were you surprised by that, by the way, by the insurrection? I wish I could say I was, but I wasn't. Did anything about that event surprise you? No, and I'm less surprised, I think, as new news comes out about it and the people who were involved. People like me, and there are lots of other people who've been doing this, but for the last 20 years, have been warning about exactly that. It is part of their mission statement. It's in their DNA to be anti-government and to want to accelerate any of the destruction that's happening. So no, unfortunately, it wasn't a surprise. I was appalled and I was angry, I think, more than anything. But I wasn't surprised by the actual event. I was surprised by the fact that I would have conversations with my friends leading up to confirming the election. And everybody was like, I'm so scared that there's going to be violence. And it's like, if we were having that conversation around the kitchen table, how could they not have been better prepared at the Capitol as far as security purposes. Do you think it was an inside job? You know, I don't think it was an inside job, but I think that there were a lot of events that led up to what happened there. I think that there was an intentional demilitarization of the Capitol Police that were there that day. Governor, what did the Secretary of Defense say what, in, in denying authorization for the Maryland National Guard? What was the reason given? Well, we, uh, none of us really spoke to the Secretary of Defense, um, but we were repeatedly being told by the uh, National Guard at the national level that we did not have authorization. Um, I was actually on the phone with uh, Leader Hoyer, who was pleading with us to send the Guard. He was yelling across the room to uh, Schumer, who, and they were back and forth saying, we, we do have the authorization. To some degree, we thought that white people couldn't do what they did, or not people like me, but I think the people in charge thought that it would never come to that. I think I was surprised, I guess, to how many, quote unquote, normal people were there. I thought there would be a lot more heavy on the more militant side, but what I saw kind of astonished me. There were a lot of women there, which was surprising. Well, not a lot, but there were some. Compared to what these movements typically attract, there was a significant number of women there. And I was not surprised. I'll just leave it at that. But I think it, it wasn't an inside job. But I do think that there were some other things at play that we'll, we'll end up hearing more about. I hope we end up hearing about it. My fear is that they're going to try to hide what they find. Just the absolute damage that Donald Trump has done has been so great. It's really hard to even wrap my head around it, but also harder to wrap my head around how long it's going to take to de-escalate the hate that he basically allowed in America. What are your thoughts on that? What do you think the next 10 years looks like in this country? You know, I hate to say it, but I don't think we've seen the worst of it yet. I think it's going to heat up. 
especially within the next six months to a year. I think what needs to happen, and I've called on the Biden administration to do this, and I hope that they do, is we need a commission on radicalization and de-radicalization because we are dealing with a critical mass of people now potentially looking for the next thing, right? If you're QAnon or if you're part of these groups, there's a lot of fallout that's going to naturally happen because people become disenfranchised with the whole notion of it. There are already more violent, more extreme groups searching for those people to try and recruit them over to them. So if we don't have some way to safely move them out of there and bring them back into society, I think we're going to have a real problem. And I also think we need to look at the propagandists who drove this because so much of this was driven by fake news and propaganda on the far right. And do we know that it wasn't Russia contributing to the propaganda or China? We don't really know how much they capitalized on. I don't know that we know how much they capitalized on, or at least to the extent of that, because you're talking about hacks on top of that, troll farms and promotion. But we absolutely know that Russia was involved in being a megaphone for that and in many ways creating their own fake accounts to promote that stuff here. And the propaganda is being promoted from Eastern Europe, from places like Ukraine and from Russia as well. This has always been a transnational problem. Unfortunately, even back in the 80s and 90s when I was involved, people like David Duke had forged those relationships in Russia. Most people don't know this, but David Duke lived in Russia for several years in the 90s. So those alliances have been forged for a long time and are absolutely in play with this. So we do need to look at the propaganda. And then also, I think we need to follow the money. We need to see where a lot of the money that's funding these groups is coming from. Follow the money. We need to follow the money. Well, you've spent years now, years and years, dedicating your life to combating hate in America. What drives that And has it changed over the last four years? I mean, I think what drives me personally is I always think like if somebody else had come up to me in that alley when I was 14 years old, I had been like a rock band or a group of ballerinas for crying out loud, I would have been the greatest dancer on earth, but it just never happened. So I think I try and be that person that I wish would have come up to me. But I also want to be clear, this isn't just about young people. And I think we saw that at the Capitol. We see that with QAnon. There's a whole other vulnerable group of people that are searching for identity, community, and purpose and have a whole lifetime of potholes. People outside of liberal elite colleges often haven't had the kind of basic information about where stereotypes come from in our history, the way that this is not just common sense, but this actually was used to perpetuate and justify an economic and a political order and is so today. We have to give people the gift of that kind of education so they know their place in the world and feel empowered to change it. And so I think this country is overdue for a truth and reconciliation process in every corner of the retired people in their 60s that are starting to figure out who they are again after maybe a whole lifetime of doing something else. And I think we've forgotten how vulnerable that generation is too. So I think we really have a lot of work on the horizon. What are some of the most important things that people like you who used to be white supremacists can do to atone for their former selves? I mean, I think it's different for everybody. Not everybody wants to speak publicly like I do or speak on stages or do interviews. And I think it's really about how you choose to live your life and how you choose to treat the people in your community and about making your life's mission about repairing the harm that you've caused in your life in your own way. It's hard to say like a blanket way everybody should atone for it, but I think we have to make those steps. Otherwise, it's not 
atonement. Otherwise, it's just walking away, washing your hands of something and saying, well, I'm not that anymore. Well, that's not good enough because we're in a moment right now where the things that we contributed to are flourishing. And I always say that to the people that I work with is we've contributed to this. You saw how it destroyed your life and the lives of people around you and your victims. Now we have to stop that from happening in future generations. And People choose to do that in different ways. And this may seem like a naive question, but is there a risk of backsliding? Yeah, sure. Is there anything that works to keep people in the light? Yeah. I mean, when I say backsliding, I think some people can go back to that lifestyle. Some people can go sideways into another toxic lifestyle if you're not careful. And I think it's really just about always self-reflecting, always being honest with yourself. For me, it's been about making sure that self-care exists, not just about the trauma that I cause other people, but being part of that cult was traumatic as well. And I also deal with the trauma of the people that I work with on a daily basis. So self-care has always been important for me, but speaking the truth, and I go through great pains to make sure that what I say these days is the truth and is not based too much in emotion or something that's illogical. I made that my mission is to really shed light on what's happening I do believe that you can be an expert on this by studying it, by looking at it from far away. But I do think that there's a unique insight from having been there that I can add to this conversation. And I feel like you connect on a different level when you've been there or at the very least really tried to put yourself in those shoes and identify with it as much as possible. That's when you make a connection. That's when you can change hearts and minds. Tell everybody about the Free Radicals Project and how people can help you and your work. Thank you. Free Radicals Project is my initiative that I founded to build a global disengagement network. So I work with networks of therapists, again, and job trainers and people who fill these potholes or help repair these potholes for people who are disengaging from extremist movements. I've helped hundreds of people. And if you want to learn more about it, you can go to freeradicals.org. And finally, this is the question I always ask my guests last because I do want to leave on a good note. What gives you hope? Well, I think I meet people every day that give me hope, not just in the people who are now committed to understanding and fighting against white supremacy, but the people who have left it, who are now committing their lives to right their wrongs. And I have faith in young people. I think that we underestimate young people and they're smart, they're motivated, and they want to build a better world to live in. And hopefully as the people who have been the protectors of that world for them we do a better job of leaving them with a better place. And I think last but not least is find somebody that you think is undeserving of your compassion and give it to them. Because I think oftentimes you'll find that they're the ones who might need it the most. It's my pleasure, Alyssa. Thanks for having me. I mean, there's a lot of people that have left. So, I mean, we need to keep this keep this in mind and we need to keep this narrative going that, that folks can leave gangs, folks can leave extremist movements. This idea of, oh no, I'm trapped here. You can get out and there are, there are uh, things, uh, places that you can reach out to to help you. I um, spent about 13 years in the organized uh, hate movement in Canada. About seven years ago, left that. So... Um, I've uh, decided to study and, and settle down and start a family and, and now uh, work in the area of uh, violence prevention. Recognizing the different types of trauma that those uh, and harm that those groups cause to society, realizing that members of minority communities had, how they were, had treated me over my lifespan, 
which was always, uh, I couldn't think of bad things. The reattachment, I started getting reattached to things in, in the community like work and going back to school, studying, those things. So the positivity was outweighing that, that exhausting negativity that was existent during the, the time that I was uh, affiliated with those groups. Reconciliation, it is such a hard concept, and I want to be very clear that it's not for me to decide how black and brown people and others who have been targeted by hate groups approach those who fostered that hate. But for those of us who find the idea of reconciliation possible, we have to figure out how someone who has lived so much hate can achieve that goal of coming back out of the dark. How can they find their way into the welcoming embrace of a society who is rightfully infuriated at the views they used to hold. Christian Picciolini leads the way. Perhaps the most important thing is that he openly and loudly acknowledges the hurt that he caused, and he does the work of atonement. He doesn't tell other people what they need to do to accept him. He asks for their forgiveness and tries to help other people like him find their way out. And as hard as it can be, it's kind of on us who are able to do so to help these people stay in the light once they get back here. Because if every single person rejects them because of who they used to be, we're going to be pushing them back to where they were. And does anyone really think that that's the best outcome? I mean, this is hard work on both sides. It takes humility and patience and grace. It takes understanding and empathy for those it can be hard to feel any empathy for. But it might be the only way back from the abyss of racial hatred and injustices that is right in front of us. I'm grateful for Christian. And I'm grateful to the people he's helped leave lives of hate. And I hope you are too. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. 